As Pastor Scott said, I am Pastor Daniel, youth pastor, one of the elders here at the church next door. And you can always tell when it's time to speak God's word because things start going wrong. Which, fortunately, I have backups of backups of everything. That being said, I would be remiss if I didn't make my wife happy and say, happy one, two, three, one, two, three day. <laughs> because it's 12, 31, 23. Okay. So as we begin this new year, let's listen to what God has to say to us. Do as I say. What do we tend to think of when we hear these words? Do you hear your angry mom or dad? Do as I say. Do you hear your own voice talking to your kids? Or maybe to your employees or your other coworkers? Do as I say. Do you hear reprimand? Do you hear rebuke? Do you hear that command? Do as I say. Or maybe you hear that gentle reminder. Please do what I say. Through my head tend to be do as I say, not as I do. That hypocritical reminder that we fall, but we hope that others do better. We hope children learn from our mistakes. We hope that others can just see what is good and follow that, even when we mess up. But I also think of those times my parents would ask me to do something that I just didn't understand. And I would try and try. And I would keep thinking, no, I haven't done. But why? This doesn't make sense. And then, sometimes with a hint of annoyance, sometimes with the gentleness of patience and understanding, my parents would simply do as I say, with the implication that it'll all make sense soon. And in Matthew, Jesus just spent the last chapter and a half talking to the religious leaders. And we need to remind ourselves that this is his passion week. He knows he's headed for the cross. And it's generally believed that while he is giving this little speech, it's Tuesday. It's one of my favorite days of the week. No reason, just is. We know he had his triumphal entry on Sunday. He cursed a fig tree and cleansed the temple on Monday. And now he's in the temple, having discussed his own authority, the unfaithful 
of sons and tenants who killed servants and the of the master, the apparent worthiness of those who are invited to a feast, as we see those who were originally invited, maybe got uninvited because they uninvited themselves. So he pulled or in the weak. But we also see it's the people who likewise killed servants. We saw him deal with paying taxes and even the final resurrection. And the last two things that were discussed were the greatest commandment. And again, Jesus explaining the source of his authority. After all of this setup with the back and forth with the Pharisees and the scribes, which in Greek is grammatase, there's a reason. Sadducees and lawyers, Jesus addresses the leader. Scribes, these. You, they were hearing him talk like you're hearing. We need to remember that a lawyer was simply one who knew the law of Moses. Forward and backward, could probably recite it in his sleep. He doesn't bother even talking with the Sadducees because we know they deny the power of the law even while they teach it. Instead, Jesus just focuses his attention on the Pharisees, the conservative leaders and pastors of their day, and the scribes, which is literally the grammarians. Remember, I told you they were called grammates. These were the theologian priests who copied the law and wrote out all of the commentaries. So these are the people with the most influence. So we finally get to chapter 23, and with all of this setup, we see him say in verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So we see right here that Jesus directs this introduction to the people, not to the people he's been debating. I imagine he starts out looking at the crowd. They sit on the seat of Moses. So do what they say. But as he talks, he shifts over to the Pharisees and the scribes. So he may be talking to his disciples, but he is actually speaking to the leadership. They are the stewards of God's word, delivering the message first given to Moses and the prophets, to the people of Israel, and they sit as judge over the people. Uh-huh. In Deuteronomy, chapter 17, <clears throat> and you shall come to the Levitical priests 
and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from their verdict, either to the left or to the right. So this means Jesus is reminding them that yes, the leaders speak God's truth. You are to listen. We still see Jesus doing that thing he's been doing this whole time where he points everybody listening back to the word of God. He uses the word of God to explain where he's coming from so there's no way they can say he's denying God's truth. So Jesus says that the leaders are still spreading God's truth. And I imagine the leaders are now even starting to look a little smug. Okay, here's this guy that honestly we're trying to kill. But he's saying, yep, listen to us. We're doing it. Jesus even said, listen to us. So hey, you followers, listen to us. Do as we say. And then Jesus shifts. And like I said, I imagine he is now looking fully at the Pharisees and scribes as he says, Do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. So we see Jesus puts more words in their mouth. Yes. Here is what they're saying to you. Do as I say, not as I do. In the next couple of weeks, we will be seeing a deeper example of what each of these really mean as we continue through the rest of chapter 23. But right here, we're seeing that brief overview, such as keeping others from heaven while promising good things, making people worse in the process. We see justification of wicked actions while hypocritically condemning others. And we see in his summary a reminder of message Pastor Scott gave just a couple of weeks ago that when Jesus dealt with his authority in the greatest commandment he stressed loving God by loving others 
What does Jesus say right after that? The religious elite try to love God, but they do not do it by loving others. It looks like they love God because they can explain the law to you. They can explain what it means to live according to God's commands. And then they add more commands to help protect God's word so that what is already impossible for us to perfectly obey God gets another level of impossibility added on. So it is loving to obey God's commands, and it looks like they are loving God because they're even protecting his holiness, but it is not loving to keep giving people more rules to obey. Yeah, you're doing great, but now go do more, or God will not love you. It is loving to point people toward God, However, Jesus shows us that it is not out of love for others that Jesus, or the Jews are doing this. They are doing it so that they can look good. And how do we see this? They do these to be seen by others. It is selfishness, pride, and prestige in the leadership. They make themselves look good so that when people look at them, they see people who look good and righteous. It's not about honoring God. It's about looking like they're honoring God. And it can look like helping out in every ministry in the church, but never personally reading your Bible. You don't pursue God in your daily life. It is like posting to Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, the posts of your daily readings where you spend 45 minutes making sure the picture or the video looks great and you might remember to actually read the passage your Bible's open to. Do it not so much to grow closer but to look righteous. Jesus continues, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. As I was studying for this, I found out there are lots of people who look at this passage and rightly point out there were better words Jesus could have used than the word phylacteries. For example, Moses in Exodus 13.9, in Deuteronomy 6.8 and 11.19, we see two different words used that is translated as phylacteries in most of our Bibles. A Hebrew word pronounced either tofafa or totafa. You better remember this. There's a quiz next week. I actually start learning Hebrew this week. It's going to be fun. Um, or it's also the Aramaic word tefillin. Both of these mean bindings of remembrance or minder, reminder. Blah. There's also the Greek word that was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is asolutas, which means immovable or unshakable, something that you can trust. 
These are meant to serve as reminders. In Exodus, it's the reminder, hey, God saved you from Israel. He has brought you through 10 plagues and a sea. Remember this. And then we get the reminder in Deuteronomy in chapter 6. It's where we get the greatest commandment. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Moses reminds everybody, bind this on your forehead or your hand. Remember you are to love God. So it sounds like they're doing the right thing, but Jesus used the word phylactery, which was a word that talked about a lucky charm or something that can push away demons. In other words, this is a superstitious charm. It is magic. And so all of these people say he shouldn't have used the word phylactery. They had words. He's saying that the Jewish leadership are being superstitious. Do you think Jesus used the wrong word? It seems more Jesus is saying the Pharisees are using God's word as some sort of protective spell to keep away the demons or to make their life better. And that definitely seems to be the example we get. Instead of keeping God's word at the forefront of their minds, hearts, and actions as an act of worship and love, they are using God's word as something defensive and even offensive. And the fringes on their cloaks were to be a reminder of God's holiness laws, as found in Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. They're showing they know God's word better than anybody. Look how long the fringes of our robes are. We know all of God's laws. And you know what? There's hundreds of them, and we've added thousands more. Look how amazing we are. And this reminds me of the parable Jesus told of the proud Pharisee. Oh, God, look at me. I fast twice a week and I give to the poor. And the tax collector who bowed his head because he didn't feel worthy to approach God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which means this looks like looking down on other Christians because they don't quite believe the same way we do. It's letting everyone know what they've done wrong and never showing grace. I know I've done that. It is reminding people God said and then leaving them to their own devices. It is reminding everybody God said and doing the opposite yourself. which of course means we have to have food. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They thought of themselves as better than others. They thought that it was better to show up early so that they could get the best seats, and then everybody would know, hey, I'm somebody you can talk to. I'm one of those people who knows everything. Come see me. 
I'm going to sit as close as I can to the front so that I can talk to the preacher and then maybe help you understand what the preacher was saying and maybe even correct the preacher as I'm going. For the record, if we ever say anything wrong, tell us. <laughs> We're not afraid of being corrected here. So it's just like showing up to church and finding somebody in your favorite seat and throwing a fit. It's wondering why church isn't doing more to serve you, meet your needs, instead of helping each other. It's arguing or debating the meaning of biblical passages and words without a willingness to be proven wrong. So I'm thankful for Pastor Scott reminding everybody that there's two of us teaching on Revelation. We might disagree on some things here and there. It's okay. Oh, right. It's all of these discernment teachers we see on YouTube today who call out every little sin of teachers out there. And they are no better themselves. And I know I used to follow a bunch of them too. But our Pharisees and scribes love greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. This is just a continuation. They love being seen as smart. Some rabbis even demanded people give them public honor that you should bow down to them in public. You should kiss their hand. You should even move out of the way while they're walking down the street so that they don't have to do this. More YouTubers who expect you recognize their good teaching. Or you're a horrible sinner. It is our so-called apostles and prophets today who brag about their spiritual giftings and they drag other people away from God's word in the process. Because we know more today. It is expecting non-Christians to behave just like Christians. Or that all Christians should act exactly the same way. This is just like being a Pharisee. And yet Jesus says that these are the people we are supposed to be listening to. Well, how does he continue? <clears throat> Verse 8, Matthew 23. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So is Jesus saying we shouldn't have teachers or pastors and you never should have teachers or pastors over you? No. He is saying stop seeking the titles. If he was really saying nobody should have titles, he gave 12 people the title apostle. And those apostles called people pastors and teachers. Instead, 
he is saying stop seeking to be better than others stop seeking to always correct everybody seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness Matthew 6:33 and maybe he'll make you a teacher or a pastor Remember James's warning in chapter 3 of his letter, not many of you should become teachers because teachers are judged more strictly. And we see this right away. If we look at the reaction of the Pharisees and the grammar Nazis, I mean scribes, they like being followed, but at the same time, what does Jesus himself do? do the next several verses are called the woes against the pharisees and scribes so let's remember if our teaching makes god say woe to you be careful we also see that teachers are held to a higher standard so we should seek that standard first and what is that standard from just a few verses ago. Love God by loving others. How do we do it? Well, Jesus basically explained it to us in John chapter 14 when he says, Do as I say. Literally, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, he will keep my commands. But he also says, Do as I do. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works. Or as we see right here in Matthew, the greatest shall be your servant. He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We love God by loving others through service. When we think about what this looks like, Paul gave us the greatest example in Philippians, first in chapter 2, and many of you may be thinking of the greatest example of humility, but Paul starts by talking to us. Philippians 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So yes, we do take care of our own interests, but Paul is reminding us that we should be taking care of others first. We are to think of others before we think of ourselves. And Paul does continue to remind us that this looks like our own creator, the sustainer of our faith, coming to us and dying for us, even death on a cross. 
Likewise, we serve God when we try to make it easier on each other to obey God. Like I said, it is hard. So let's help each other. We don't compromise on the truth. We still uphold God's truth. But neither, like the Pharisees, do we bash people over the head with God's truth. There's a good way and a bad way to tell the truth. Instead of demanding a title or going out of his way to get recognition or correcting every little issue or killing people who didn't follow God perfectly, Jesus gave us the example. The one who had every reason to be judgmental and ruthless, even though his Bible does have the book of Ruth in it. He showed love, grace, and mercy. And yet still told people, go and sin no more. But first he saw them, he heard them, and he loved them. People don't want to hear about a God who punishes them if they have no clue of his love. So maybe you have fallen short of perfection. Romans 3.23, we all have. Oh, I should have brought my mug with me. We're all on the naughty list. It's not rules we follow that get us into heaven and away from God's wrath, as the Pharisees clearly believed. It is trusting in the name of the one who could follow the rules perfectly putting our trust in the work he accomplished when he died on a cross to wash away all of our sins and restore us to relationship with the father it is believing that he raised again from the dead overcoming death and sin giving us hope for eternity with him Not merely sitting on clouds playing harps, but actually living in a restored earth with restored bodies free of pain and death and fear and actually working in good work. Not the toil we have today. It is a reversal of the curse from Genesis 3. So maybe you're the one who doesn't show grace to others. I know I was the one. I was even talking with somebody this morning, 15, 16 years ago. You can ask the guy who left because he was probably going to stare at me this whole time. 15, 16 years ago, I was the one who would tell you, this is what God said. Do it. Why aren't you doing it? You're doing a horrible job. And then it was people in the church who came over to me and went, hey, man, you're a jerk. (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm doing what it says. People still would say I seemed loving back then. Ask my wife. She met me during this time. But my idea of a joke was, why did you say you're good? No one's good but God alone. Ha-ha! Horrible sinner. There were things in my theology 
where I would either become a super legalist. You don't believe this, but it's in the Bible. But so something that seems to contradict it, right? Instead of telling people what's wrong, I had to get the reminder when I was wrong that it's okay to sit down and talk it out. I had to grow in grace myself because of others, pastors, teachers, friends who showed grace to me. I even fell in with the hyper-charismatics for a while so that, yep, we should be prophesying, we should be speaking in tongues. If you're not, you're not really saved. Hey, let me tell you about God. I understand him perfectly. Okay, who here understands God perfectly? If you raise your hand, check yourself. Because these people came to me and pointed out the truth. I actually read the Bible to see God's truth. But it still took others coming alongside me to remind me that we are all sinners in need of grace, constantly learning and growing. But maybe you're the person who spent this past year so focused on what everybody else was doing wrong that you start to get cynical. And I know I've done this too. But I told you, Paul gave us lots of reminders to the Philippians. And in chapter 4, he reminds us, verses 8 and 9, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. It is so easy to focus on the negative. Look at our world today. It becomes easy to focus on what everyone else is doing. And it's even easy to focus on what I've been doing wrong. We tend to be our own harshest critics. So Paul gives us the reminder don't focus on the negative. We know this is a sinful, fallen, lost, hurting world. Instead, focus on what God has done and what God is going to do. And he's starting in each of us. He starts with our own heart. He starts with our own mind. God, what is good? Show me your goodness in this world. Help me to see your goodness. Help me to be your light to rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus you want peace? Stop focusing on the negative. See God's positive. Christ died for your failures and your sins. 
all of them for all of time, period, end of story, when you put your faith in him. So give him your failures in your sins. Don't just tell people everything they're doing wrong, but rejoice with them when they do good. Celebrate when you actually obey, when you do something good, when that cookie was delicious. I love cookies. We encourage each other to grow in godliness as the Holy Spirit transforms us and remakes us into the likeness of Christ. So yes, we call out false teachings, but more importantly, we teach God's truth to each other with grace, mercy, kindness, tenderness, even some honor and respect that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Others will hear what you say and they will see what you do. And they just might see Jesus. Paul said lots of good things. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. It's going to bother me. So in conclusion, we are called to obey God's commands. It is easy to see our own failures. It's easier to see the failures of others. We're at that time of the year when we tend to set resolutions, goals for the coming year. I prefer the term goals because goals are things you shoot for, whereas resolutions are things that, yeah, I'm going to try and do this. And then we tend to condemn ourselves with many of these resolutions because did you know the average person literally 64% for 2022, gave up on their resolutions before the end of January. 3% made it to December. So sometimes we forget that the other people in church or at work or at the grocery store or on the road are going through something. How easy is it to get upset with others? Because don't they know what I'm going through? Without remembering, they're going through something too. We want to be quick to complain about how stupid other people are being. We want to put them in their place. We want to correct them. We want to remind them of all of the rules, whether it's family or friends or coworkers or the person on the street or at the grocery store. We think they're uncaring. They need to show more grace. We can even look at people like Adam and Eve or the nation of Israel and think, why would they do something so stupid? Why did they keep messing up? And yet, what do we do? So maybe 
whether we see everybody else failing or we can't get over how often we fail ourselves. Instead of losing hope, instead of merely setting annual resolutions or getting upset with others, let's start where God told us to. God has commanded us to love. And just like Paul said in Philippians 2, we look after our own needs as well as others. But Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 that we work diligently while seeking and trusting God to meet all of our needs. When we trust him, when we love him, life is not always easy. And it can sometimes feel impossible to love others. Especially when we know they're wrong. Maybe even when we know we're wrong. But Jesus says, do as I say. In that gentle, caring voice of the parent who understands, who knows better. Sometimes he gives a rebuke especially when we knowingly disobey. But mostly, Jesus is our compassionate teacher and friend, guiding us toward a godly, fulfilling life. When we focus on loving God by loving and serving others, it is not a burden. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because we can rest in the light of knowing he is in control and he is the one who is loving through us he is the one accomplishing all of the good it is based on his faithfulness flowing through us by the power of the holy spirit so i want you to leave here today hearing this one thing it's not always easy but jesus has shown us the way so let us draw near to god and draw near to each other in unity so that we can help each other not knock each other down lift each other up point each other toward Christ and live for him